In 2000, pastors Dave Cover and Keith Simon started a new church in Columbia, Missouri, hoping to show the beauty of the gospel to a skeptical culture and community around them. And they wanted to do and sow towards what is good, resist what is evil, and work for the welfare of their city. They named the church The Crossing, wanting to live at the intersection of the gospel and local culture and community, and to be the kind of church that made such a positive impact that if they ever disappeared, even non-Christians would feel their absence. I'd like to be that kind of church too. After years of forging relationships with the community, they became a sponsor of a local progressive film festival called True False, with church members donating large amounts of money to the charitable cause and volunteering for the festival and buying tickets and attending. Here's a picture of Pastor Dave and the True False Film Festival director, David Wilson, in 2013. They hoped to build bridges with their neighbors and thought the films that were being featured here, though something that they themselves would not produce, were at least asking good questions about the human condition and what was wrong with the world. And this partnership drew the attention of national media, including the New York Times and Christianity Today. And for many, it was an example of how the church could act as a faithful witness and work towards the flourishing of their community. But in 2019, one of the pastors of The Crossing preached a sermon affirming that there are only two genders, male and female, and all hell broke loose. No, I don't know about the amen, I'm not sure. And things blew up. Aaron Wren, author and senior fellow at American Reformer, writes extensively on culture and the future of the evangelical church, and he describes the crossing and the fallout surrounding this sermon in his new book, Life in the Negative World. He wrote, this sermon caused a major controversy in the Columbia community. As the crossing stood by their position, institutions in town came under pressure to drop partnerships with the church. The True False Film Festival decided to do so, cutting ties, and an art gallery in the town did likewise. A church that had worked hard never to offer gratuitous offense suddenly found itself a pariah in parts of the local community it had been trying to reach. Wren goes on to say the crossing quickly became toxic in this town and the circles that once welcomed it. And he writes, regardless of their approach, the world wasn't willing to accept their beliefs. The fact that Christians like these are at risk of being ostracized for their beliefs reveals that we've now entered a new and unprecedented era in America, one I call the negative world. That is, for the first time in the history of our country, Orthodox Christianity is viewed negatively by secular society, especially by its elite domains. The shift to the negative world poses a profound challenge to American evangelicals and their churches and the institutions. Wren makes a strong case that we've entered a new negative world where Christianity is declining and cultural shifts have eroded the positive perception of the Christian faith once held by a majority of Americans. And it slipped first into kind of a neutral position where 
people began seeing Christianity as just one option among many in a pluralistic society. But now, he says, Christianity is seen negatively as a threat to the new moral order. I agree with a lot of Wren's diagnosis of our culture, but with one really big exception. We've always lived in a negative world. American culture in the past 70 years has not been as positive towards true Christian discipleship, not church attendance, but true Christian discipleship as Wren presents it to be. I grew up in the 1960s and 70s, and I was a youth pastor in the 1980s and 90s. And we were constantly concerned in those days about the fabric of morality unraveling around us through the sexual revolution, through liberal education, through drug use, through anti-establishmentarianism, a word I learned in junior high and always wanted to use in a sermon. (laughs) Finally got my chance. The world has always been negative. Sure, there was the veneer of church attendance and a type of cultural Christianity of morality in our nation. But I remember standing up against an evil tide much more than people's nostalgia likes to recall. Besides that, it wasn't just the progressive left that was scorching the crossing in Missouri. While they were being canceled by the left, they were also taking severe heat from the right for doing it in the first place and for calling out things that are also unrighteous, even though they were political conservative causes. And two of the pastors from The Crossing, Keith Simon and Patrick Miller, wrote about that in their own book, Truth Over Tribe. But regardless of how bad it was or how bad it is now, here's my point. Jesus has always expected us as his followers to be joyful outsiders in our world. We are to be outsiders in the world in which we live. Yes, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. But until that day comes, we will never be on the inside. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are pilgrims. We are in the world, but we are not of it. And the more we realize this, the less reactive we'll be to the negative world that is around us? Why are we wringing our hands with how evil it is? God has given us a job to do. We are to love aggressively and present, as James talked about so brilliantly last week, the message of reconciliation, for God has called us to be his ambassadors of such. As Patrick Miller put it himself in a blog post, Christians have always lived in a negative world. Yes, each negative world is different, and it's worth exploring those differences, but Babylon is always Babylon. Now, thankfully, the leaders of the crossing responded wisely and biblically, and I'm grateful for their witness. Miller and Simon wrote about it in their book, Truth Over Tribe. They write, after the festival ended our partnership, we knew we had a decision to make. News organizations were calling for our response. Should we fire back in kind, critique them publicly, tell our church to boycott the festival, ask business owners to withdraw their support? Of course not. Jesus taught us a different way. 
You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It wasn't easy, but it was simple. Jesus told us what to do, love. So we took the internet to the internet to thank the festival for our past partnership. And I and others wrote long social media posts sincerely expressing why we love the festival and encouraging fellow church members to continue attending in the future. In a private conversation with one of the festival's leaders, he said to me, it was a master class in grace. I wanted to take credit, but I couldn't. I replied that we're merely students of the master. What a disruptive witness in a world that would love to choose sides. This sort of radical enemy love is not what human nature or our popular culture tells us what to do. We're told to get even or to be dismissive. Like in the words of that cultural icon and NFL aficionado, Taylor Swift, Player's going to play, 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 play. <laughs> Hater's going to hate, 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 hate. I'm just going to shake, 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 shake. <laughs> shake it off. Uh-uh, shake it off. <laughs> it's the Super Bowl. I had to go there. But that's not what Jesus tells us to do. The kingdom of God is an upside down, inside out kingdom. It is not of this world. It does not stand according to the customs and the ordinary ways of humanity, of our society, of even our country. It is a different kind of kingdom. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it is said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, the Old Testament never said that. That's just what loving your neighbor turned into over the years of oral tradition. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You know, these lessons uh, had to perplex the crowd that was listening to him. To slap you on your cheek, for someone to slap you on your cheek, was one of the greatest insults that you could level against a person in that day. And Jesus is saying, when they do it, turn to them the other cheek also. And for someone to sue the shirt right off your back, man, that's pretty low. And yet Jesus says, give them your coat also. Give them the cloak, probably the only item most folks had to keep warm in the middle of the night. And when a Roman soldier who could legally do this forced you to go one mile by carrying their pack because they were tired of carrying it themselves, Jesus said, when they do that, go two miles. 
This is radical discipleship. This is otherworldly. This is against the norm, against the grain, behavior not of this world. We shouldn't misunderstand that Jesus' command is saying certain things that it's not. He's not advocating passivism. We're not meant to foster crime in others or allow our loved ones to be harmed and taken advantage of. Theologian Howard Voss writes, Christ never told me not to restrain the murderer's hand, not to check the thief and robber, not to oppose the tyrant, or by my gifts to foster shiftlessness, dishonesty, and greed. But if we're honest, it's not really the murderer, the thief, or the tyrant that we deal with every day, is it? It's more the one who steps on our toes, infringes upon our rights, gets under our skin, holds an opposing view. To follow Jesus means not only loving the most vile of enemies, but also those who do us wrong, who insult us, who diminish us, or who presume upon us. And when we choose to love them as Jesus has commanded us to do, rather than getting even or dismissing them, things can happen that could change everything. They could change the very narrative in which you find yourself acting. First, it can break the cycle of hostility. When you love an enemy, you change the atmosphere and create the possibility that they themselves will change. It sets up an environment not for going to the corners, but seeing where something else could happen. Their hostility is oftentimes curtailed or even it might disappear as your unexpected grace gets their attention and makes them wonder, why didn't you hit back? Why are you being kind to me? Why are you showing me mercy? They may not say it at the time, but there's a very real possibility that it will lodge in their thinking and at some point they will wonder and ponder, why is he different? Why didn't he hit me back? This stuff can really work. It, it works in traffic when someone cuts you off. I've tried it. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it works when you're insulted at work or when you're a victim of their gossip. It works when someone speaks to you a harsh word or demands something that's unreasonable. If you lash out in anger, you only add to the strife. You only escalate the hostility. But if you respond in love, not defending your own rights, going above what is expected, showing Christ's love when they have showed their evil, then you'll not only diffuse the situation, you might just win a new friend. The power of that is remarkable. Second, when we do this kind of thing, this aggressive love towards another that is opposed to us, even an enemy, one who persecutes us, we need to remember that this kind of enemy love isn't Jesus just telling us to shake it off or to do nothing. He's telling us the direct opposite. It's not the retaliation we're inclined to or, or the revenge that's served up best cold, but 
it is Jesus telling us to do something. Not just be passive, but to aggressively lean in and to take action and to show Christ's love in this moment to this person, to the one who opposes us. The Greek word for this kind of Christ-like love, we know are familiar with it if we've been in church, it's called agape. And the verb form of that is agapeo. And it means goodwill and benevolence towards another. A willful delight in the object you're focused on, whether they deserve it or not. Not a feeling, but an attitude and an action. It can be a very simple kindness. It can be lending help. It can be offering resource. It can be diffusing the moment. It can be leaning in so that they all of a sudden have an action of love moving towards them, even though they have been vile and opposed you. The disciples' response to evil or wrongdoing is not passivity. It's to love the way Jesus loves us. Not because they deserve it, they don't. But neither did we. And yet Jesus deliberately moved towards us. Paul says to the Romans, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were enemies to God. We were opposing him. We were in opposition to his will and to his plan. We gave him the finger, thrust out of town and decided to do it our own way. And yet he came moving towards us, his enemies, sending his son to die on the cross that we might be saved. Love means we move towards those who oppose us. Love means we move towards those who sin against us. Love means we move towards our enemies. We take the blow, we absorb the evil, we work for reconciliation, and we offer them the same kind of love that Jesus showed us. This kind of love means we not only go the first mile, we willingly and lovingly and purposefully go the second. This kind of love means we don't strike back when we're hit, but we willingly and lovingly and purposefully absorb the next evil blow. This kind of love means we love those who hate us, those who do us harm, and we willingly and lovingly and purposefully pray for those who persecute us. And in the end, this kind of self-sacrificing love is the only thing, the only thing, that can transform human relationships and human history. It's the kind of love Jesus showed towards us. And as his followers, he calls us to do the same. Lastly, remember that none of this is possible. Apart from him, none of this is possible. You can't love like this apart from him. Apart from what he does in you, 
that changes you from the inside out, making you more like Christ the longer you follow him. These commands to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to give more than what's expected. I simply can't do any of them in my own strength. It's not possible. I simply can't do it. And they're not meant to be impossible. They're meant to drive me to Jesus where all things are possible. They're meant to bring me into him where it is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Not me in my own strength, but the Holy Spirit inside of me, changing the way I love, changing the way I live, changing the way I forgive and seek the benefit of another. It's the Holy Spirit in us that makes all of this happen. It helps to remember that I'm the rebellious one on whom his kindness has been shown. That even as his enemy, he reconciled me to himself. And every time I try to excuse myself from loving difficult people, I need to be reminded that I've never been choice, but I am his chosen one. When I approach the Lord this way, then I can approach my enemy this way. When I submit to him, when I deny myself, when I take up my own cross and follow Jesus, allowing his spirit to transform me day by day, obedience by obedience, moving in the same direction along the way that I find in me the ability to love my enemy, to pray for those who oppose me, those who persecute me, that if someone would strike me, I could turn and say, here, would you like this side too? When they take from me something that's not really theirs to take, I give them even more to help them see that just as I was opposed to God, they can find Christ in his forgiveness too. Perhaps this morning, you've been considering following Jesus. I want you to take a look at what we've described this morning. Take a good look. This is the man you can call Savior, the one who forgave who loved his enemy, who prayed for those who persecuted him, who turned the other cheek, who went the extra mile. That's the kind of savior that he is. He's not like any other man you'll find. But his love and spirit will set you free. Just confess him as your Lord. Just bow your will to him. Just accept him and say, I've tried to do it on my own, but it hadn't worked. And I receive you into my life. And I commit to following you. Be baptized in water. Be forgiven of your sins. Maybe you've been hurt by evil people and you've been busy nursing a grudge. It's time to forgive. It's time to love. Maybe you're enacting revenge when you simply need to stop resisting the evil person. 
Maybe you've answered the insults and slaps of your reputation with slaps of your own. It's time to turn to them, the other cheek. Maybe someone took your tunic or forced you to go a mile. It's time to give them your cloak and go a second. Maybe you see the divide in our nation, in our culture, and you see it as us against them. I would dare say to you that's not how Jesus sees it. He moves towards those who oppose him. He prays for those who persecute him. And he challenges us as his people to do the same. And I dare say in this particular year, where we will once again face tremendous amounts of dissension, discord, and disunity as a nation, wouldn't it be great if God's people did the same thing Jesus did? That's what he's called us to do. I pray that we can do that. If you need to release that pain, love the person that gave it to you. Pray for them. Release them. And you'll be released in the process. If you need to make public forgiveness, today's a good day to do it. Simply put, we're called to love even our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us because he first loved us. May we have ears to hear and hearts to obey. Amen. This is my lovely wife. We want to say thank you for praying for us as we went to California last week. We were there speaking at a marriage advance, and uh, they call it an advance, not a retreat. Isn't that cute? Um, and, uh, and I was not well. I was sick, and you prayed for me, and God really helped yes, us. We were really, really blessed. This weekend, Jamie and Kathy are there at that same church. It's like they, they get a twofer uh, from Atlanta. Red Rover, Red Rover. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. May I have another? So they're there with them today, so pray for them. Donna's going to share with us, and then we're going to pray. I found a quote this week from a guy. He wrote a book. I didn't read it, so this is not an endorsement. But the quote was really cool. His name is Mike Donahue, I think. And his name of his book is Finding God's Life for My Will. We often say that differently. We say finding God's will for my life. Um, I like his better. My will is the problem. The life is the Lord's. Hmm. So I want to read a small piece. Um, Grace yesterday was speaking to me about reading the story of Nate Saint, who was one of the martyrs in Ecuador with Jim Elliott, which more people know Jim than Nate. Um, but she was telling me about reading it to her kids and being so emotional and trying to answer their questions about it all while she was crying. But this is a a section of their story. When they were attacked, one of the missionaries fired two shots as warnings. One shot grazed a tribesman who was hiding in the brush unknown to the missionaries. It was therefore clear that the visitors had weapons, were capable of killing, and had chosen not to. Thus, the tribe realized that the visitors were indeed friends, willing to die for them if necessary. 
When in subsequent months they heard the message that the Son of God had come down from heaven to reconcile men with God and to die in order to bring about that reconciliation, they recognized that the message of the missionaries was what they had seen enacted in their lives. They believed the gospel preached because they had seen the gospel lived. Wow. We can live the gospel if we are students of the master, like the quote that you had this yeah. morning. Yeah. If we are owned and transformed by him, if we are asking his life to come in and transform our will, then like Chris said, we actually can do the thing that seems impossible. Yes. We can forgive. We can run into the place of conflict, not to defend ourselves, but to give the last ounce of what we have. Mm. I want to live like that. Yeah, I do too. And I want to pray for us this morning that Amen. we can. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. God, you made the ultimate sacrifice. You gave your son that while we were yet sinners, we could be invited into your family and given every benefit that comes from that. That we could truly become new creatures. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with that kind of love. Yes, Jesus. That we would indeed live the gospel. That we would be faithful, disciplined, obedient students of the master. Yes. And that the way we love and forgive, the way we serve, the way we are kind and giving to those who want to take, that that would be the message. That we would genuinely be known as your people. Yes, God. Not because we love each other, but because we can learn how to love even yes. our enemies. Yes, Lord. Make this true of us, God. Do what needs to be done in our hearts to rid us of our preferences, our prejudices, our, our stuff, and make us useful to the Master. Yes, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you gave us not only your words, but your example and how we are to live this life. You called us up to a, a greater righteousness than even the Old Testament law had provided. And you called us up to something that is absolutely impossible to do apart from you. But when you come in to us and you, you live as the Lord of our life, the motivation of how we live, how we love, then all things become possible. It's no longer we that live, but Christ that lives in us. Lord, that is what our world needs more than anything else. They need the understanding that Christ in you is the only hope of glory. And we pray, Lord, for revival across our land. We pray that there would be a great awakenings, Lord, 
in cities all over this nation and around the world, God. We pray, Lord, that people would truly repent of their sins and bow their knee and not raise up arms against each other, but rather bow knees before the cross and be reconciled with one another. Lord, I pray that you'll help us as a people, as a church community to be that kind of beacon of reconciliation where we not only have been reconciled ourselves to God, but where we are ambassadors declaring to the world, be reconciled to God. And I pray, Lord, that we would truly live the words that you gave to love even our enemies, not just our friends, not just our neighbors, not just our family, but even those who oppose us, that we would pray for those who would persecute us, that would oppose us and stand against us, that we would be a people that turn the other cheek, that go the extra mile, that give way beyond what is required. And I pray, Lord, that this would sow seeds of salvation and a harvest that needs to be brought in for the kingdom's sake. Lord, make us that kind of church. Make us that kind of people. Let us love aggressively, leaning in and loving others as we might love ourselves. Thank you for your word, your spirit with us, and all that you've been revealing to us, Jesus. We ask these things in your name. Amen.